Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. The title of today's show is Whinge to Pass. That title provided by, by me. I'll take the credit. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. Welcome to the Japanese Grand Prix Race Review. Today, we will congratulate the World Constructors Champions Red Bull. We'll remark on the rise of McLaren and we'll despair in the end of the North American March. We'll also discuss... The general machinations of a chaotic Japanese Grand Prix will ask whose fault was everything as only seven cars finished the race. And will also ask how many resignation letters can you fit into one Grand Prix? We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. I'm joined in the shed by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Did I stay up late or did I get up early? Oh, look, <laughs> a big whiskey. Wait, that doesn't help at all. So what I did was I woke up at half four. I was very tired. I had three cups of coffee during the Grand Prix. And once it finished, I went and I got a giant breakfast in town, came home and went to bed. So I'm now on my second Sunday. I like that. I like that. I had actually got home about a half hour before the race started from work, managed to fit in a quick dinner, and then uh, settled in to uh, attempt to not fall asleep through the whole race. And we're also joined by international test driver sensation, Bradley Philpott. Hey, Brad. I love the Japanese Grand Prix because it's it's a lifelong tradition, that early morning start. We only have a few of them in the year, but... I really like it, sitting on the sofa with my cat, drinking a tea, <laughs> peanut butter on toast, 
It's, it's like being a kid again. It used to be my thing when the babies were little is I would set my alarm silently on my watch and then I would get up with the babies and I would do the feed while watching the Australian Grand Prix or, or, or you know, one of the flyaway races. And then I'd get all the credit for being like a brilliant dad. But really, I was just up watching the Grand Prix. I, I don't have children because I've made excellent life choices, but me and my cat had a great time. You don't have children, but you own like a go-kart and a much better car than me. So I can't argue and that much. Because it was early in the morning, I got to tinker with my go-kart through the rest of the day. There it wasn't like the weekend was over. <laughs> okay. And we're joined by plucky young Australian, Jonathan Simon. How's it going, Jono? The English-Australian rivalries continue. <laughs> Piastri and Norris throughout another race. That's something to talk about a little later on. I enjoyed the 3 p.m. race for once where I sat on the beach, had my phone out, had my iPad out, and managed to watch a Formula One race during the day and not the nighttime. Yeah, there is a rivalry, though, between our between our cultures. We're very close, considering how far apart we are in the world. But I always feel like your people have ruined sport that, that we've had a direct rivalry in. By, by winning, being, is yeah, that what you're saying? by just being like having good tans and winning. Like, you ruined cricket for me in the 90s. Yeah, well, that was before my time. Yeah, of course. I couldn't even tell you who won it back then. I'm going to assume it's Australia, <laughs> based on the way things have been going. It really didn't. It was, it was, yeah, it was Australia, 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 and then England won one time in the early 2000s, and then I stopped watching cricket forever. But that, <laughs> that won't happen in F1, just because Piastri seems quite good. I tell you what, Matt, we have got a lot to cover here. And I definitely, oh my goodness, like there was the, the Perez disaster is a segment in itself. The Mercedes drama was uh, just something to, to behold. Epic. And uh, yeah, but it, it's like a seismic shift in that yeah. Mercedes relationship. McLaren are like, exceeding all expectations. And I really did during this race. There was a period where I was looking up track limits, rules, uh, race director's notes, interacting Aww, on Twitter. And I, I've I, rubbed off on yeah, you. Yeah, but there was like this 10-minute segment where I just went, I'm not, I'm not watching the race because there's so much to actually dive into. So thank goodness there was the safety car that almost gave us a break to kind of pick stuff apart. Yeah, it, 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 I don't know it, it, if it was just because the race was on late at night, but it just seemed exceptionally chaotic to me. From a from a is there a narrative to this race or is it just Perez hitting things and then random shots of an overtake that <laughs> happened or someone driving off onto the gravel or whatever? Um, and thankfully, we had loads of radio drama to entertain us because actually not a whole lot happened once we got past the start. But it feels like a lot happened, Brad, because this is just it's such a good racetrack. It's a it's a classic old school racetrack in the dry it risks being boring but i think from a a wheel-to-wheel racing point of view like things like the spoon curve down to the final chicane past 130r and then into turn one like there's there's genuine racing to be had at this track yeah i was actually a bit pessimistic that these cars would be able to do any kind of overtaking because they're so wide and this is you know a traditionally narrow circuit but actually I was surprised by how much action there was. I know it wasn't like the world's most exciting race on the whole, but the pockets of action, the which I'm sure we're going to talk about, the, the Hamilton-Russell battle, the, the way you have to set up a move in the previous corners. And, and if you make a mistake, you are suddenly under attack in the following corners. 
it is actually a good track still for modern yeah. F1. So, Brad, back me up on this because obviously like, I know people don't like, I've done this on iRacing so I know what I'm talking about, but I'm also not going to stop doing that. So validate me slightly here. So at the end of the lap at Suzuka, we, we know from doing it on sim racing, is if you overtake into the chicane, for example, you're leaving yourself then vulnerable to be overtaken down to turn one. And so I'm so happy that I've got the sim racing experience because as soon as I saw that like Hamilton-Russell battle, I go, oh, that's the wrong place. That's the wrong place to win a battle. And you also know from that sim racing that defending the inside down to turn one, for yeah. example, often doesn't help you. Uh, you know, it might be the only thing you can do in a certain situation like Russell-Hamilton, but the driver that just stays on the racing line and ignores your defense gets to swoop around the outside of you. So, yeah, you, you will have a bit of an insight from your, your sim racing exploits. And Jono, you wouldn't have known this, but in the olden days, finishing with only 15 cars or as many as 15 cars would, would be kind of a treat. But, uh, but this track provided high attrition. So. Well, I, I think one of the first races I ever watched in my life was uh, 2002 Australia, which I think had like three cars finish the entire race, uh, unless I'm getting mixed up with another one of the years there, but they, they had some chaos. The track is great, and the overtaking coming out of the last corner, it, it, like you guys spoke about, I think it's a little bit more difficult than, than we give it credit because of the downhill traction zone coming out of that last corner. It yeah. doesn't make it easy for a driver to reclaim a position back into turn one, but it makes it possible. And that's what we want out of Formula One is something like that, where we get good racing that's hard earned, hard fought as well. Um, and, and Sergeant as well, you saw in qualifying, he's on his own. He's not even battling. He crashed at that final corner, um, which Timo Glock has done in the past. I think a few years ago, I don't know if it was uh, Sorokin or somebody, I don't know, back in the Williams in, in uh, many, many years ago, but yeah um yeah it's a it's a, okay. it's a fun race track i feel like we've got the to set the tone for this show by playing a, ve a very early game you mentioned logan Sargent in qualifying we're going to play a very early game of whose fault is it <laughs> and i'm exclusively going to brad because brad you are the only person who knows what it's like to to press the 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 right pedal with your right foot in a high-powered sports car this was in qualifying before the race start logan Sargent. He put his foot to the floor and he was wrestling that car. It was clearly out of control. And at every opportunity that he had to stop crashing, he elected to continue crashing. I don't know who it was that said this on X or Twitter, but the comment I saw was Latifi walked so Logan Sargent could <laughs> run. Um, oh. the, uh, this is really mean. But, um, it is mean. The, <laughs> The exact situation that you just described, I'm sure we all waited for the replay to see, okay, what happened here? What kind of, what was the circumstance? How how can we uh, like let him off or give him a pass? Yeah. And as the replay developed, it was like, oh, that's like, that's a really obvious and bad driver error. Explain why. It was, he was chasing, chasing the lap time. You know, he was finishing a lap and he was eager to get on the throttle and he picked up a bit of wheel spin, you know, just too much throttle for the amount of rear grip available. With, with some steering lock. With spin. some steering lock. That's the key though, isn't with, it? With some steering lock because he's in a corner. The You know, the exit of the final corner, sorry, the exit of the chicane takes you into the final corner. So your acceleration zone necessitates some steering angles. So you can't get around that. And he got some wheel spin and the rear started to step out. He started getting some oversteer. And the only cure for that, when the problem is the throttle, the cure is to remove the throttle, remove the problem, come off the gas. Obviously, you will lose time because you're backing off the throttle. 
that you've caused a problem. So you have to deal with it. And he kind of didn't. He was like, he wanted to have his cake and eat it. He wanted mm. to, you know, get away with the wheel spin and still get a good lap time. And you have to make a decision at some point, you know, is it worth putting the car in the barrier to chase this mm. lap time? And I don't think it was because he did so much damage. They had to essentially re, you know, make a new car. They had to completely rebuild it. Well, this is, this is really interesting. They had to make a new car. So they, they replaced so many parts that it was deemed to be not, not the same car, a new car. And it's not the olden days where you can have a T car and you can put, you can put your car in the wall and then run back and try to, to claim that third spare car. So I think it was because they changed, was it the survival cell, the chassis, or they changed too uh, much yeah. of the chassis that, that that became a third car. You can't do that. So it's a 10 second penalty and he's already been doing badly. You know, we, we had an argument, not an argument, Brad, but at Zanvor, I know you th- you felt that the Vowell's explanation about his hydraulics failing was was valid, and I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to to go. Yes, his 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 hydraulic hydraulics failed over a curb, but he hit that curb, and also he's hit a wall in the previous two events, and then now he's hit a wall in every event since. And so, as much as I like James Vowell's defending him, he put up a very token defense of him this weekend. So I think the argument against Sargent is the other rookies that have just the same kind of experience as him or a lot less that are just doing a much better job because that Williams isn't the worst car on the grid. No, it's I not like the, the has with Schumacher, is it? No, and I, I think it's really the um, the Alpha Tauri that is generally the worst. And yet you've got someone like Lawson who is outperforming the incumbent he's he's outperforming someone who's done several seasons and is well regarded and he's got less experience so sergeant doesn't really have an excuse that car i have heard people say that he doesn't have the latest parts but that also doesn't excuse <gasps> you from putting it in the barriers no no no, no. but brad so, here's the thing this is it's his fault so uh so papa papa jimmy so james vowels he did his whole i'm i'm not i'm not angry i'm disappointed he said yes we can't keep him up with the same amount of parts we're struggling with parts due to unforeseen attrition which is everyone knows that means because sergeant has been binning it event after event yeah it's it's really not a good look and Mm. i we've got a lot of races in the season nowadays so by now in in the olden days, when when we were young spanners and we we were um, Formula One fans in our youth, the <laughs> yeah. season would have been over by now. Yes, so we would have gone, had a full gone. season to see what he's like, and team a team would have made a decision on next year's driver based on what they've seen. And I don't think we've seen enough, even with the caveats of he's a rookie and he's not in one of the best cars out there. I think he's just not ready and whether that's his fault or the team's fault for bringing him in too early or whatever like or maybe he would never be good enough that one i don't know that one but he's not looking he's not looking really any better than latifi with the caveat there that latifi had done it for a long long time so maybe given stroll levels of experience or latifi levels of experience he might might get there eventually a lot better but is that what we're looking for in a modern F1 driver no. when we've got uh, when we're spoilt for choice of drivers who seemingly can come in and just perform instantly like a Piastri or a Lawson? Or a Lawson, Jono. Well, first off, the incident—it's it, obviously his fault, right? I mean, he's not yeah, really battling yeah, yeah. with anyone. What, what other fault would be the wind in that situation? <laughs> but 
it is a downhill traction zone. It is very, very difficult. That that sort of adds to what Brad says. Is like you you need to back off the throttle because going downhill, you don't have sort of gravity sort of you know helping the car stick to the racetrack. Point is, he's had his accident. Now he's certainly not going to be driving for Haas anytime in the future. Like that, I think that's pretty well established. There's one seat left on the grid next year, and it's his. Now, what do you do? If you're Williams, is this your P45 resignation letter podcast? Like we said, and we sort of discuss him and what's happening to Perez. And this race really did decide a lot of futures. I'd have (laughs) to say this, this race weekend. I think so. Right. Matt, by the way, for everyone who's uh, not in the UK, a P45 is the letter you get when you're sacked. And that tells the tax agencies that you are no longer paying tax for that company that you're, that's why that is funny from what Jono said. Matt, the start line, there was chaos at the start. What caused it? Whose fault was it? Oh, okay. I, I don't get to reply to the sergeant stuff. Okay. Oh, go on then. I, no, we'll to be fair, to, we'll no. It would be racist of me to not allow, to silence right. an American on this topic would I be racist. my hand at the back you and do, being no, you, you do it. You let me know what you no. think. I will give you a voice. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, briefly, <laughs> okay. to put it very briefly, unlike my usual putting it very longly. Um, I feel like Sergeant's explanation for this, just to get back to what Brad initially said, is that he didn't have a grasp of how much room he had there. In other words, he expected the track to be farther out. Now, that's still his mistake. Yeah. Don't get me okay. wrong. But it's a different kind of mistake. No, oh, in, look, the sense, in, no. The, in the sense that what have he you thought done? he no. had room to do what he was trying to do in that car. I think it's a worse mistake. <laughs> I think not knowing the track by the time you get to qualifying <laughs> is oh. a worse mistake. That is fair, except for guess where F2 doesn't race. Yeah, but also and, guess, guess who came third in the race today? Uh, okay, and who right. also had never been there. Yes, okay, stop, Matt. So in a better in, car and a less difficult. And that's the other point I want to make, if I may, real quick. Okay. Is uh, you said that that the Alpha Tauri is a worse car. I agree with you, but I think the Williams being faster might also be a harder to drive car, kind of like the Red Bull that Alex Albon had to deal with that year and a half he was okay. racing. In the Red Bull team. Now, this is not to defend overall Sergeant, but these are just points that I felt should be made. Anything else about Sergeant can come up in the awards now. And in my defense, Matt, in the chat, I said, hey, Matt, we've spent too long talking about Sergeant. Do you mind if we move on to like the big boom, boom race stuff? And Brad now insists on not letting me continue. I want you to continue. I just want to point out that there is also another significant sergeant incident that we probably need to get to before the awards because it's kind of part of the start. Oh yeah, that will definitely that will definitely feature. But Matt, bring us to yeah. the start because there was chaos at the start. So, I w- I will brush past the McLaren challenge to Verstappen. It was only ever paper thin. Uh the the wrong McLaren really had was second because Piastri didn't have as good a start. Norris had a great start, but even if they had managed to swarm Verstappen. Uh, anything less than wiping him out would have been temporary. So the real interesting stuff was back down the grid. It appeared to me like Carlos Sainz jinked left like a lunatic. Sainz went, whoa, sorry, Perez went, whoa, I'll just wipe out this empty Hamilton-looking space to the left of me. Pushed Hamilton off track, hit him again, then got to turn two, and then for good measure, shoved him off track what on earth 
was going on at the start. Uh, well, as I like to put it, uh, Perez had a choice to make. He could either hit Carlos Sainz or he could hit <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. Well, and he on. chose to hit Hamilton. <laughs> he could have stayed still, couldn't he? Uh, Brad? Well, no. I actually want to defend... I can't believe I'm going to do this. I want to defend Perez Ooh, in this situation. Okay. For because, the last time this show, I'm, I'm imagining. So. so as a driver, you you actually... He didn't really have a choice to not hit Hamilton because you react to the car coming towards you. When you're pressed into a small gap like that, um, and a car suddenly jinks towards you, it's it's very, very difficult to suppress the natural reaction to just swerve away from that thing. And if that means you you dink into a car that happens to be pressed up against you on your other side, that that kind of often tends to happen because you that car might get out of the way. They, there's a chance that car might get out of the way, but the car that's coming towards you is definitely going to hit you. So you have a choice to try and help avoid the definite accident and the maybe accident is kind of a secondary problem. So that is my only defense of Perez this <laughs> evening because the rest is going to be abuse. Jono. The problem is watching from science's perspective and his onboard shot is it looked like the door to the right or the inside where Leclerc was defending was, was going away. It was vanishing. And that's why he's jinked left to go, well, I'm going to need to go to the left here and that's what he's probably thought. Oh, look, I'm three wide, not knowing he's actually four wide because Lewis Hamilton's had an exact equivalent <laughs> start like him and just absolutely nailed it off the line. Now it's around one of the most narrow racetracks we ever go to on the calendar as well. We've had incidents like this at the past at the start line. You know, you, you know when you go to a racetrack or you go to a Formula One race, you start watching the Grand Prix, lights out, away we go, whatever you want to say and all that shambles. You never expect incidents on the straight, you know, <laughs> yeah. heading to turn one. But at Suzuka, yeah. it's happened. And I can count maybe two, three years in the last uh, maybe 10, 15 races we've had here. I remember 2012 had a very uh, big incident at the start line with Raikkonen, Alonso doing pretty much what mm. we saw today between the, the two Ferraris and, and Lewis and and who was the other, and Perez as yeah. well. I think we've got an early contender, Matt, for, for comment of the week in our Patreon live chat, patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex to catch us in the Patreon live chat and get our extra Patreon content and get ad-free feeds. Rob Asher says, I've never been hit by Sergio Perez and I'm starting to feel a little left out. Well, I can't blame him, but in Perez's defense, and I, I love this. This must be how the physicist feels when they said, oh, I have now, this is Isaac Newton. Oh, gravity. I get it now. And it applies to everything because every incident we're going to discuss at the start happened at the same place and had the same basic constraints. And as Jono points out, one, you have a track that is narrowing. It's a funnel into turn one. So people on the inside are headed to the outside. People on the outside are headed to the inside. And the second thing you have is more than two cars next to each other so the person on the inside doesn't know the person in the middle has a person on the outside and the person on the outside has nowhere to go even though they know even if they know the person in the middle has a person on the inside next to them headed towards them and that is what caused approximately the problem for perez you had signs coming towards him you had hamilton on the outside with nowhere to go mm. and perez is forced to make that choice but the real cause of this incident. This is where we need to be. Yeah. Go this on. is what I wanted yeah, to get yeah, to. This yeah, is the yeah, juicy yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, was the fact that Charles Leclerc forgot how to start his car. He did. And, and Matt, 
I no one I don't think anyone has picked up on this. You're the only person who I've seen sharing this with people. Is like Leclerc had a horror start. And so as much as I think that Carlos was the agent of chaos here, Charles Leclerc just balked the start. Signs tried to go down the inside, but Signs knowing that he'd made a bad start made sure that he only left like 0.9 of a car's width to the inside. Yeah, well, and this is what it is. It's um, and and I see. I come from a bike racing background. You race on the velodrome and sprint. Have you ridden bikes, Matt? Have you? There are no. Yeah. 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 You know the fixed gear with yeah. I wish you'd Uh, said. Yeah. Yeah. I've 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 done that. I'm sure I've talked about it because you know I like to talk about it. But there there are very specific rules. In fact, I remember being at a district championship and seeing someone disqualified for weaving at the finish to block someone passing them. And this is what happened. Leclerc starts off one direction to the outside after he catches his wheel spin. Signs sees that he's made a slow start, goes to the inside. Leclerc looks in his mirrors and changes direction. And now Signs is closing very rapidly, sees the change of direction. And the only way to avoid hitting Leclerc, this is what I'm getting at, is to go the opposite direction, mm, which yeah. is directly towards Perez. Perez sees him coming. And as Brad says, reacts to it. And voila, you have Hamilton on the grass saying, wait a minute, what did I do to Perez this time? Johnny. Well, I, I was just going to add that, you know, what can you do in this situation? Do, do we have to blame somebody in this yes. situation? A yes, lot we of do. Yeah. People, Always. That's a the... lot of people had bad starts, you know, from Leclerc. <laughs> Verstappen had a bad start from P1. I don't know how he survived, you know, still first going into the first couple corners. And that's because I know Oscar Piastri said after the race that he got too excited over his start and he yeah. added a bit too much throttle, in, which in is the why second the second phase, stage of yeah, his start. Yeah, yeah well, it wasn't, wasn't as good. And then you go back in the pack and you have what initially I thought I had one. I was like, that. what's that lizard that can like see? You know that lizard that can look at like a few things at once? I think it's so all, I was looking all, at the... all lizards. So, but, but you're specifically yeah. thinking about uh, chameleons and geckos? Yeah, well, yeah. geckos. Well, yeah. let's say geckos being in cans at the moment. They're they're around my house pretty much every day. Yeah. But the <laughs> the I was watching the start with the McLarens and the Red Bull. I had an eye on Hamilton because I saw him around the outside, and I was like, "Whoa, Perez is is squeezing him there." And I thought the big commotion was one of those two things, but it wasn't. It was another incident behind, which was Bottas and Albon. We still collided, oh, so there mate. were three separate. <laughs> You know, yeah. pieces of drama here at the start at Suzuka. Well, whose fault was that, Jono? Well, that, that's another situation where you go, you know, five into half doesn't make any sense. You know, there's <laughs> barely any space in Suzuka, and it's a, it's a complex one-to-one rabble. All right. Are we really – are we going to accept that? It's a racing incident? No. Got Matt. Never. Everything's a racing incident. No, it isn't. Never. Matt, whose fault is it? Assign blame. Uh, this is a challenging one for me, and you're going to have to take my opinion with a certain – large grain of salt because it, it involves Ocon listening. as well oh my and, and you always dismiss anything that involves yes, him your Ocon Fossi agenda is disgusting uh, but what I will say is it happened at the exact same piece of track where Perez had just run into Hamilton but they were further back in the field Ocon got a decent start Botas got an amazing start Albon got a terrible start so what happens is Ocon is about a car length in front of Albon Botas has made up time on both of them, and he pulls alongside of 
Albon. At the same moment, Ocon had started moving over because the track narrows there. He's basically following the pit outline, you know, the outside pit outline. He was following that. And the rear wheel of Ocon hits the front wheel of Botas. He loses his wing, smashes into Albon. And that was the that was the incident. That's a tougher one to judge. I would tend to put my last person on the scene rule into effect for that one, because unlike Leclerc, who was clearly changing direction to um, to block signs and cause signs to have to avoid him, Alcon's movement was very obvious and slow across the track, mm. but it did leave Botas uh, nowhere to go. But as he was last into the sandwich, okay. I would tend to give him a little bit more blame for that, but it, it it is very close to being a racing incident that one because I'm sure Ocon had no idea Albon was the other side of Botas, and for sure that it was not Albon's fault. That's the one thing that you can say for certainty yeah. in that incident. When you watch his onboard, he's just driving in a dead straight line, completely minding his own business, and then suddenly he's got two wheels in the air, except for the terrible start. Yeah, but that once you make a terrible start. You can't then be at fault for whatever happens afterwards yeah. if you literally just drive in a straight yeah, line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're an obstacle. You're, it's like blaming the chicane. Oh, no, wait. I love blaming chicanes. Anyway, John, you do. Yeah, 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 I do, yeah. No, I was just going to add that, yeah, again, like it gave us some a great safety car, you know, later on to, to where the Japanese stewards humbly and respectfully cleared the debris that uh, gave us a great John race I. for the next 50 laps after, after that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I... I can we also? I just realized as well. We, do we have time to congratulate Max on his uh, no. and, and Red Bull on, so, on the constructors' so championship? Basically, yet? how dare you? Because you, the show notes literally say the next thing is to congratulate Red Bull on what I think is probably the most complete and and just brutal domination of a world constructors' championship. Jono, you're absolutely right. Um, this was sealing the deal. Obviously, it was always a matter of when and not if. But the fact that it's happened so early in the season and with a number two driver who is not delivering is just an incredible testament to just the the sheer enormity of what Red Bull have done this season. It's 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 shock and awe. And I think a lot of the criticism that Red Bull have is just because it has been a hurricane and a hurricane has hit F1 fans and and you can't argue against a hurricane. You can't fight against a hurricane. You just have to take shelter, hunker down and go, whoo, that was a bloody big hurricane. And I know we're going to go into Perez a little later on, you know, off our show notes, but he's only 33 points ahead of uh, Alonso, not Alonso, sorry, Hamilton. of Lewis Hamilton yeah. in the Drivers' Championship. It's so close. In my opinion, the greatest F1 car of all time, arguably. Like, oh, yeah. You look at their success rate yeah. and, and the 1988 McLaren, they won 15 of 16 races. I think where Red Bull's pretty much done exactly the same. They've only lost one race so far and they've got a longer season to do it. And it looks like they're mm. probably going to win the rest of the races based on yeah. how the racetracks are. Oh, they will, you know, yeah. Depending on yeah. What, what Vegas is like. So. For Perez to barely be ahead of the championship, because yeah. if you remove Max, right, Perez is is barely going to win this championship in the greatest Formula <laughs> One car of all time, yeah. potentially. Jono, there will be so much time to slate Perez. And as a Perez fan, you might think that I'm not going to join in, but I am. But Brad, 
uh, Verstappen has basically single-handedly won the constructors' title for for Red Bull. And as an outspoken Verstappen fan, you must be delighted. I just wanted to point to the fact that <laughs> as as non Red Bull yes. and Verstappen fans, I don't think there are any Red Bull fans on the panel, so we're all in the same boat. There's, there's really very few crumbs of comfort either, because no, nothing. It's not just that they. It's not just that they yeah. produced a really fast car that's dominated the yeah. season, but they also always yeah. do brilliant pit stops. Yep. They always, whoever they've got behind the scenes yep. that knows the rule book inside out, they, they, they managed to test the limits of the regulations by knowing where there are weak spots, like yep. we saw today with the Perez Sending second Perez retirement. Out, yeah. No one else knew that. And I don't think any other teams would have done that. And and as much as it's annoying and you can point to that as a, <laughs> um, oh, you know, Red Bull getting away with a thing, which is then going to be tightened up if anyone else tries, anyone else tries to do it in the future. Which the point does is happen. They, yeah, which, which happens a bit too frequently. But the point is they did in this circumstance, some of the other things don't fall under this category, but in this situation, it was a rule that they managed to, and find the edge uh, of yeah, which uh, needed yeah. tightening yeah. up. Yeah, and, and and Brad, they asked permission, and there was no, not a good enough reason for the FAA to go. No, you can't do that. But obviously, everyone would have gone. No, obviously, you can't do that. Wait, hang on a minute. There's no reason you can't do that. Ah, crap. We'd better tighten that up in future, which I'm sure they will do. Other examples of this are more blatant. So other examples like. Verstappen's very aggressive defending in 2021 where they go, okay, well, now no one else can do this. That's a bit more egregious. Whereas this seems to be a genuine loophole where Red Bull went, yeah, there's there's literally no reason why you can't just go back out again. Um, and then, yeah, the FIA look at that and go, ah, bugger, that's, that's our fault. And so you've got that side of their performance, you've got really fast pit stops. They're generally very solid on strategy. Yes, I'd say damn. really the only thing you can look at as, as a crumb of comfort is that sometimes Verstappen doesn't get a very good start. <laughs> no, but, that doesn't help. And and when you go to Singapore, the car is inexplicably a second off the pace. But apart from those things, <laughs> there's not a lot you can point to. So basically that's my way of saying, that's my yeah. way of, of, of praising them and saying, know. you know, they've done obviously a brilliant job. It's just a shame that as um as what what's that rubbish podcast about Formula One that is a that's basically comedian. I'm joking. I, I really enjoy them. Which um, well, uh, for F1's sake, yeah. For F1's, for F1's sake, sake tweet yeah. where they said yeah. in slightly different terms, imagine if if um Red Bull had two drivers as bad <laughs> they didn't say bad, they said a naughty word mm. as Perez, yes. we'd be in for a brilliant championship. Yeah. And and wait, I you if you want to revel in me and Brad being sad about about how complete the domination of Red Bull is, that's absolutely fine. But we are acknowledging it, and I think Brad, you're right. It's not it's not just one magic bullet. They didn't just build a great car, which is brilliant. They were good in in all kind of aspects of the race. The strategy is spot on. The pit stops are always fantastic. Compare those pit stops to Mercedes. And, you know, the the way, yeah, if you want to include the way they find loopholes and the way they push the strategy and stretch the rules and force the FIA to, to, to change what they're doing, you could definitely class that as a, a great sporting achievement if you wanted to. I don't want to, but I feel I have to. Even, even the way they crowd the referee. Oh, yeah, times. yes, crowding the referee, definitely. It, 
it works. Yeah. And other teams don't do it. Yes. And in, in a way, some of the drivers have learned that Verstappen's style that was then codified to be legal in subsequent <laughs> yes. years, they've yes. started adopting that, as we'll probably talk about with Hamilton and his yeah. defense on, on Russell today. Um, the, the teams don't seem to have caught up to Red Bull's referee crowding okay. tactics quite yeah. yet either. So I think one thing we can talk about is the way you go racing has been defined by Red Bull and in large part by Max Verstappen. So Red Bull and Max Verstappen have redefined how you go racing in Formula One. And whether you like that or not, you have to, you have to accept it, Johnny. The rule books in the past used to be, here's the rule you know, for Formula One, and, and, and this is how we interpret it. And other teams would say, okay, but we'll, we interpret it this way. And the FIA would clamp down on it and go, no, this is the way it's interpreted. That's the rule. For some reason in the last five years, we've lost our way with that. And it's, and it's like Brad said, credit to Red Bull, is that it's their interpretation. And the FIA goes, oh, our rule's not clear enough. Yeah, you're correct. Even though the FIA have the right to go, well, no, this is the way that we interpret it and, and we understand that you're trying to find these loopholes. But it's like the FIA sort of gone, everything needs to be worded so specific. Like this is, there's no common sense anymore. But the, but Formula One wasn't like this in the past. I know, I know it, I'm not saying all the time, but I do remember, you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't the case. So they've certainly reshaped things. Now that the problem with, with this, right, is, um, as as much as nobody cares about a constructors championship, this is very no. important because yeah. who's who's going to buck the trend over the next few years and take over Red Bull as quickest car? Not only have they probably started on next year's car by like race three this year with the amount of dominance they had, um, they've absolutely smashed out the constructors. And I feel sorry for Perez because imagine going on the radio or telling him after the race, "Hey Sergio, we won the constructors," <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, I don't care." Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well so I think that's awesome. where we need to go to next. Matt, we, you and me, we have, we have a lot. We enjoy supporting a driver and we enjoy, you know, our back and forths and, and picking apart, yep. you know, who's done well, who hasn't. And uh, actually, I, I do really feel like my Perez fandom over the past 10 years has been quite similar to your Ocon fan journey. We've kind of both supported drivers who weren't destined for stardom i think the difference is perez has had two real shots to be tested in top teams and and, and when when perez and ocon were up against each other at alpine or uh force india at the time my goodness did yeah. we have debates so can you sympathize with me at all when we look at perez's race today and what it means for his career when i say i'm not enjoying being a perez fan right now it's hurting i don't i don't think the things he's doing now or the way he's racing now or the races he's having now represent the things that made me a perez fan um i completely understand where you're coming from i do want to give a quick shout out to good old honda for being a part of the constructors championship and oh, no one, no one that is a, that's a think. red bull powertrain that is not a honda and that is why red bull yeah, got yeah, dispensation sure, for engine uh, reliability uh, upgrade so you're wrong that is not a honda but continue with your liabilis point uh no it's not liabilis uh, the thing to me about perez today is that i think it's a confluence of two separate trends that we have 
been that we have one seen in the past and two been seeing very recently. The first of which is I do believe Perez, and I think we talked about it last week, has gotten pretty used to people just getting out of the way because he's in a red yeah. bull. And the second of which is uh comes from poker really, the 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 saying on tilt. I think he was Jesus. driving very <laughs> much right, on right, tilt right. today. And and the combination of the two well, I mean, I know we, we took our wax at Logan Sargent earlier, but Sargent is a rookie and perhaps shouldn't have even been put into that seat before he got sent off to Super Formula finishing school. He just had the budget and the time was right. Perez is going to be living with this for a lot longer, I'm afraid, because it was it was just it was almost tragic to watch at a certain point. You're just like, how could someone with that much experience and that good of a car just have it all go so very, very wrong. Jono. He's not even doing what he was hired to do at this stage, which was support Verstappen to a, a driver's world championship. He was brought in for that role. You're a number two. This is what you got to do. He did it in 2021. And I have to say what he did in Abu Dhabi 2021, holding up Lewis borderline. I don't even know how that wasn't considered a penalty and, and dangerous driving anyway, different race. But literally, no, no, the rest of the that... show is now exploring <laughs> Perez's defense of Lewis Hamilton in Abu Dhabi 2021. Yes. No, no, no. So basically like that, that race, you know, for people who don't know, just for quick five seconds. No, no, context, no, we're, you know, we're fine. Held him up. <laughs> couldn't make the pit stop. That's what happens. Anyway, he now hasn't really done much of that since. Now, obviously, because Red Bull have had such a dominant car, we haven't noticed it. Because Verstappen hasn't needed that. You know, he's, he can win this championship on his own. He doesn't need a teammate to support him. But what happens if Red Bull's car next year flops? You know, which yeah. it probably won't. But if there's a chance where they'll need Perez to come and support uh, Max to, to win these titles. And he's not doing that. And that's the reason he was brought no. in. And if he's not doing that, that's the reason somebody else will be brought into that seat. Brad, I suspect, and I'm, I haven't looked at the figures, but I think there's more drivers that have been hit by Perez than haven't been hit by Perez. He was never like that before Red Bull. Apart from Ocon. Yes, Matt, apart from Ocon. Shush, shush, shush. Yeah, I was just about to say shush, that. Shush, um, shush, shush. <laughs> I think what's, what's frustrating for me, and I say frustrating, I don't really care because I don't really have, I'm not really invested in Perez at all. Um, but it, what what's frustrating from just a, a driver point of view, you know, on behalf of anyone who's a driver, is that you hope that when someone's given a championship winning car, a car which is capable of winning the championship, that they're going to be able to do it, do it justice at least. You know, at the very least, run their teammate respectably close. And what we've actually seen in the last three years that Perez has had a title contending car, he wasn't. He wasn't even second to his teammate in, or, or remotely second in 2021. In 2022, again, he didn't come second in the championship despite his teammate dominating the championship. And in 2023, again, he's in danger of not coming second in a car which is massively dominant. Okay, so I agree that that's bad. Can I just can I just put out there that a lot of the dominant champions of the past, their number two drivers didn't finish second even though some people thought they were good. So Massa nearly won a title. Raikkonen is a world champion. Uh, Weber, people thought was a you know good driver. Like In a team where you pick your number one, sometimes the number two gets hung out to dry. Is that, is that, is that no defense at all for Perez? 
Um, I'd also argue the same thing against those people in those situations. They they clearly right. did something wrong in those seasons. Unless we're talking, unless there was Irvine? reliability. Which, Eddie which was, Irvine, how dare you? Yeah, so he's probably quite a good example of this. Oh, okay. Where where you've got a driver that that isn't good enough to justify their place in that car, and that there are plenty of drivers on that grid at the same time that in the same position would have run the ultimate champion close. And I think that's the case we have now. I think if you did a, a straw poll of everyone watching Formula One and every professional in the paddock as well, I don't think Sergio Perez is coming out in the top 15 drivers um, at the moment. Rough, so, rough. And, and I think even that might be generous. Yeah. I think it might come lower than that. So <laughs> I, I think you... This is this also isn't his only time yeah. in a top team. You know, he's been in McLaren before. They decided he wasn't good enough to be there, and he forged a really decent career as a kind no, of strong midfielder. But I think we've seen uh, we haven't even gone into detail about all the stuff. No, we haven't. I was today, just about but... to go into that. So, like, look, let's go into detail about that. For, you know, even if you forget about the clumsy start against Lewis Hamilton, which I think at least one of the three contacts or pushing off at least one of those might have been investigated if it wasn't for turn one but you have to extend this to singapore as well i'm saying all of this mexico i'm looking at you i'm saying all of this is a perez fan but like he, he took out sonoda his own teammate you know what i mean he took out sonoda yeah. uh, he took out albon in singapore and then here he hit alonso he hit hamilton he was in a thing with carlos but that probably wasn't his own fault but then the lunge on Magnus and Jono, that's the one where you go, that, that was, it was desperate. It was, and he was completely misjudged. I don't think he expected Kevin to not bow down to him. Of all drivers, too, it's not like Kevin Magnussen is going to sort of take a step back on, on Sergio Perez. He, he whacked him pretty good, yeah. didn't he, too? You know, it wasn't like it was, it was just a, a scrape. Like, he misjudged that corner by... by I know I'm exaggerating here by a mile. Um, it was. It he was came from nowhere. He came from nowhere. He, he he came from nowhere, and it was you know Kamu Kobayashi was here in the paddock. I think for the first time since he was like a race driver, he did it at Kobayashi Corner, unofficially named by myself and by many <laughs> many F1 fanatics and Kobayashi fans. But yeah, they they you know are you serious like at that that one corner you know come on Sergio okay so we've got to move on though because we have two big big topics to talk about we're going to get to the Mercedes pairing but first we really have to celebrate what 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 were McLaren thinking how dare they there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Honestly, the amount of improvement that McLaren have made is is basically rude, Matt. How dare they go from that far back on the grid to what they've achieved in the last, like, four or five races? Uh, well, you got to love this because all the time we are told by team principals, well, we have a five-year plan. We have a 10-year plan. We're planning to do this. We're planning to do that. And at the start of the year, we heard exactly this from McLaren. Well, you know... When it came down to it, we figured out what the problem was, but too late to get it on this car for the start of the year. So we're going to bring the update as soon as we can. And then it turns out they brought the update to the update, which I didn't even know about until they brought it. And I would say that in terms of development cost and time coefficient, McLaren have won this year completely. They have turned themselves into arguably at certain circuits, the second fastest team on the grid. And I think unlike Mercedes, they started out with a car that they could adapt. And the way they've done it is by focusing a lot on the bodywork, which is much cheaper and easier to redesign and tack onto than than messing about with the suspension and the gearbox and this and that and the other. And to that end, I do believe that they roll their own when it comes to the gearbox and rear suspension. I don't think they get those parts from Mercedes, although I'd have to check that to be 100% sure. So yeah, McLaren have done the thing. They did the thing that we thought Aston had done at the beginning of the season, but it turns out they really hadn't because of all the teams who might have been affected by the TD. Well, you know, Aston is the only one that has yet to reclaim its uh, place at the front. So McLaren are are not quite close enough for that jump in performance to have saved our season. Because can you imagine if they'd if they'd done almost exactly the improvement they'd done, but they'd actually caught Red Bull and suddenly we had, okay, the championships are decided, but we've got some races to end the season with, with Norris and Piastri getting well, I mean, they are amongst the Red Bulls because one of the Red Bulls drive one of the Red Bull drivers doesn't turn up, but they we're just talking not, about max here let's be up yeah be yeah we we just aren't quite close enough but having said that i think and norris pointed this out after the race without another moment of perez terrorism during the race where he held norris up an additional nine or ten seconds he actually would have been relatively close to verstappen by the end and by relatively close i mean within 10 to 15 seconds which is is decent in modern f1 over well, I mean, we had the safety car and the virtual safety car helping out, but it's a 53 lap race. That's not a terrible margin. What I do want to point out that we haven't mentioned yet was that I'm pretty sure that Red Bull, or at least Max, had a brand new power unit in the back of his car, and that can be worth easily several tenths a lap compared to older power units. Because every time you run them, you lose a little bit of horsepower just due to the uh, frictional wear in the engine. So, so Red Bull, this was the best possible Red Bull we could have seen. And at the end of it all, 
uh, McLaren were inside 20 seconds on them and look at where they started. It gives me actually a little bit of hope for next season. And it's also happened multiple times now. Like This isn't just a, this wasn't just an anomaly. Like they happened to be decent in Singapore whilst Red Bull weren't doing well. McLaren have been there ever since the upgrades and not just these when they had upgrades earlier in the season was it at austria where they first put um, a kit on norris's car and not on piastri's yeah. and norris was much more competitive so whatever mclaren are doing even before they've got their new wind tunnel on stream the correlation's good and i thought maybe the the kind of departure of james key at the beginning of the year where it was all a bit messy and they realized it had all gone wrong um over the winter I, that looked to me like a team that was in for a really bad year. And, you know, you've got a couple of years wait before any new hirings or any any new design philosophy helps you out. And actually, it's just all happens in such a shorter time frame than I would have expected. John, are you on mute? Sorry, yes, I was on mute. They're, they're basically doing what Mercedes, uh, uh, we've wanted Mercedes to do the last year, year and a half, is, is base, bring an upgrade that's going to turn things around for the team. McLaren have done it on a uh, on a lower budget based on what I've seen from the last couple of years. And it, it not to switch this into a Mercedes chat, but just a quick segue on them is when are they going to realize that this is not working and, and switch things up? And that's where every Lewis Hamilton interview I've listened to this weekend, he's been so vocal about it, at least on Saturday and Sunday mainly about the direction they've taken. And I think he notices this. He sees what McLaren have, have done. And it is it is great and a testament to McLaren to somehow spring themselves up 2009-esque into a competitive car from nowhere. And, um, and credit to Piastri too, who's doing it a race later. He gets all these upgrades, like Brad said, one race later, and, he, and he's still managing to do well. So um, they're in for a good a good couple of years, you know, and I and I I have a feeling that it ain't going to end here for McLaren. I feel like the upgrades are going to come in. This car is going to transition into next year very well, and then we could see them as a regular midfield sort of best of the rest. All right, let's move on to Mercedes. Actually, part part of the reason I moved on to Mercedes too quickly, and I shouldn't have done, is because I got too excited about Piastri's qualifying performance. And I think, I think like to anyone who follows my Twitter, I have to go, yes, okay, yes, I did get carried away on Saturday. That I was like this, he could be the Norris killer, and I'm not quite sure why. In my F1 fandom space, I've decided that Norris needs to be crushed. So I, I can't really explain why. Brad, but like I do, I do feel like ah, oh, someone needs to put Norris in his place. I, I, I honestly can't explain why I don't like Norris, but I am a Piastri fan, and then I'm I'm rooting for Piastri to to show Norris up. But he didn't. Norris did very very well in the race. Yeah, I'm I'm actually probably on exactly the same level as you uh, on this. I I liked Norris, and then for some reason. I didn't quite like him as much. And then when Piastri came along, it was like, yeah, he'll, he'll show But I still think Norris is amazing. I actually think Norris is in a similar level, but nowhere near quite as strongly that I um, think Verstappen is really good, but I don't like him. I think Norris is also really, really good and potentially on Verstappen's level, which will be a controversial comment. Oh yeah, um, that's a big but I just, But it's more, it's not that I don't like Norris, it's just that I don't love him. Um, and... I I really do like Piastri. I love 
in the same way that Alex Van Jean thinks he's boring. <laughs> I, know, I he's love not. that he that he's just so dry and <laughs> calm and unfazed by what is he is a really young person as a rookie driving for McLaren in his rookie season and suddenly he's got a really decent car and he's taking the fight to his extremely well-regarded teammate, I would be bouncing off the walls excited uh, about the, the, all of the successes. And he just doesn't seem to care. He's like, he, he's not even celebrating. It's like he doesn't care until it's a win. Yeah. And then maybe we'll see something. There, but yeah, I, there you I'm go. a fan. There you go, Jono. You must be by default, obviously a fan. Well, yeah, it depends. I'm not I'm not big on the whole patriotism thing, but he is great and it's great for the country of, of Australia to have two drivers on the grid next year and one of them could finish on the podium finally and not get disqualified like Daniel Ricciardo was back in 2014 uh, at the Australian Grand Prix. But in terms of Piastri, um, what's so impressive and, and something that Brad just alerted me to is he's doing this in his rookie year, 15, 16 races in, a year out from racing, which is a big deal, you know, to lose, not necessarily lose skill, but just lose your touch for a year, you know. It's not old school F1 where you have a, a dedicated test reserve driver who's doing almost as more or as many miles as, you know, the race drivers, you know. There's limited testing these days. We've seen in the last two, three years in, in this era of F1 with how limited testing is, is the fact that drivers who move teams or rookie drivers really really struggle in their first year in a new car and a different car in a new team and yet piastri despite having been given upgrades races later races plural actually i'll take that back one race later is generally how they've done at mclaren and still match lando norris yet qualify ahead of him Mm. please this guy's (laughs) in for a great future and no question about it Lando Norris is is in for a a tough asking at mclaren especially next year because that's where the transition could yeah but i jumped the gun I jumped the gun because I've liked how Piastri has has kind of entered the scene and I've always kind of had this thing of like maybe Norris is overrated and I think that's pure sporting fandom and sporting bias and I, I was too eager to see, yeah, the Norris killer. And in, I think his qualifying and race pace is such a different beast now in Formula One. And yeah, so the fact that, that Piastri is able to keep up with, or anyone is able to keep up with a teammate in qualifying isn't the signifier for whether or not they are able to then match their their teammate on on race pace. So I I should say at this point that perhaps although their parting was bitter, Piastri should say a thank you to Otmar at least if not the team for hooking him up with a whole bunch of historic Formula One cars at important circuits throughout the season in the year that he was out of the sport, because I'm sure that didn't hurt him in the slightest, being able to get that sort of experience. It's the kind of thing that uh, we heard about with Stroll, too, before he came to Williams. Now, the difference here is that Piastri is obviously a world-class talent, but what is keeping him what is keeping him from fulfilling that dream that, that we all have? Norris is the established driver, and there's no more exciting story in Formula One than rookie shows up and yeah. beats established class driver. We loved it when Hamilton took it to Alonso. Yeah, we loved it when Alonso took it to Schumacher. Yeah. It's just, it is the best storyline. <laughs> but the boy has to learn how to manage his tires in the race. 
it just seems like to me that on race pace, and especially when the car is full of fuel, mm. he is unable to yet. I think he'll get there, uh, but he's he hasn't quite figured out the secret to getting through the race fast without overheating the tires. And that's why we see the pace differential. Like, mm. I mean, he had such a huge advantage because because he pitted during that virtual safety car which was accidental. They didn't know it was coming, but it happened. He got um, about a 14-second undercut on yeah. Verstappen. Yes. But but Norris was able to catch him with a regular pit stop, close that gap, and still have enough pace to, to, to put a decent gap on him. So that's the knowledge I want for Piastri by the time he gets to next season so that we can really see the two McLarens just right on the same pace and on the edge of what they're capable of. So I think that's all we've got time for today. Oh, unless you wanted to talk about the Mercedes thing. D did you? Did you? Was there something to discuss with Mercedes? Okay, wow. The gloves are off at Mercedes. So Lewis Hamilton sets about his business. He makes a couple of mistakes. George Russell tries to overtake him, is unsuccessful, chooses a very alternate strategy that no one else has uh, has decided to go for, go for in that race. A cheeky one-stop that leaves him vulnerable at the end, makes him be overtaken by everyone from Verstappen to Sainz. But there is there is there is controversy. There is there is dynamics in that team that is bubbling to the surface after an all-season-long, or in fact, we could say a two-season-long map, pretense that all yeah. is well at Mercedes. But this is exactly the same as every other volatile teammate battle in every racing series on the planet. At Mercedes, there's a clear battle. Hamilton versus Russell. Uh, yeah. And I, I, will, I will attempt a hot take here. So if I get it wrong, feel free to tell me I've gotten it wrong. I but will. I think, the issue here, I think the issue here is that Lewis, whatever else he's concerned about, is looking at Ferrari and the Constructors' Championship and the gap from Mercedes to Ferrari. And I think Russell is looking in the mirror at himself and his own results. And I think, th I think that Lewis has had enough of that. And I think that we saw it today. Jono. Jono, he's gone. Jono has disappeared. Oh, oh, I think I'm back. Yes. Have you got me now? Yeah, but you're on the wrong microphone and you sound terrible. Oh, okay. I okay. should be... Oh, I should there you're there. You're fine. you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Tech now. issues. Go, go, go. The cables... To be cables fair, you're on the so, other side of the world. Um, so There's we'll, a lot we'll of cabling to deal with. Yes. Okay, go on. Carry on. <laughs> what I was going to allude to was... That's interesting what Matt talks about because I actually thought it was th not the opposite today, but I actually thought Lewis was thinking about his own race more and losing a position to science. But Matt sort of proved me wrong because science is Ferrari, you know? So, so yeah, Lewis is thinking big picture as well in that sense. What I wasn't happy about with, with the end battle was the TV pundits. Uh, now, I was watching Sky's coverage today. And the TV pundits constantly going, well, George should let Lewis through. And then if, uh, yeah. if, um, oh no, sorry, if George should hold up Lewis and then let yeah. Lewis through on the final lap. I'm yes. like, why? Why does he need to let Lewis through on the final lap? You know, he's, Lewis needs to gain this position legitimately first. So it, it was a tricky situation at the end of the race in that situation. You know, <laughs> I guess they're on different strategy Br and everything. Brad but if has I'm some George hands Russell, up. 
<laughs> if I'm George Russell, Brad, I sort of sit there going, well, why do I need to do this Carlos Sainz trick and, and help Lewis defend Sainz and then let him through on the final lap? I don't need to do that. You know, at the end of the day, Lewis needs to earn that position and, and they, they swap the cars and it actually turned out to be the correct decision because they at least managed to defend one of the Ferraris. You know, the Ferrari Sainz didn't jump both Mercedes. Mm. So I thought it was, it was the correct decision at the end of the day. There you go. So I just want to explain why, to answer Jono's question, basically, why does George need to let Lewis through? At the time, when I was watching this live, I was in exactly the same camp as you. I wasn't really thinking of the race picture in its entirety. And I, I was thinking, oh, you know, Lewis, why doesn't he just do an overtake? You know, he's if he's quicker and he's to overtake. I'd forgotten that Russell was only on this alternate strategy because he was behind and couldn't get past Lewis earlier in the race and had asked for this strategy or certainly discussed it with the team and was basically rolling the dice on what was probably a slower strategy. And in every other teammate situation, if you saw this happen at Alpine, which we'll probably get onto later, or, you know, pretty much any other team, if one driver is doing a a wildly different strategy, you know, when they meet in the middle, when they, when their strategies converge and cross over, the team has a responsibility to make sure that, you don't ruin both their strategies. Yes. That's just how it works. That's As a team, that's the way you run the race. You make sure that the driver that's on the faster strategy and was ahead at the time the other driver decided to gamble gets through without too much of a hassle, especially when he's being chased down by a rival team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is that the thing, Brad. It's like, yeah, so that fair play. If Russell wants to roll the dice and he, ha- and he, and he has made a habit of rolling the dice. He very, very often says, okay, I'll go on the harder tyre for longer. And as Kyle says, I'll go hang. So he'll go hang for a safety car. So he'll, he'll go, right, if there's if there's a safety car, if something happens, then I get a free pit stop and then I, I gain track position. But basically, like he's only ahead because of that gamble. The whole stream of, of cars from, from Verstappen to Sainz basically are all destined to go past him. He has no defense. He's seconds a lap slower. And 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 in fact, he didn't really defend that hard against the rest of the cars coming through. But when it comes to Hamilton, he, has, he goes, no, uh, I, I, I must maintain this position. This position, not, not the McLarens, not the Ferraris, not the, not, not the Red Bull up ahead. But now that it's Hamilton, I will not yield. And this would be different if this was a pre-arranged strategy before the race and maybe we were in the final couple of laps and George and Lewis were both fighting for a similar position in the championship. But that's a very, very different circumstance from what's actually the case. You've got one of the drivers who is in the hunt for second place in the driver's championship, whether or not he cares. He certainly says he doesn't care particularly about that. The team are in the hunt for second in the constructors. And it wasn't prearranged. It's it's something that's changed during the race. So why should the driver on the normal strategy, who isn't doing anything wrong, although he did do some things wrong earlier, which we can talk about shortly, um, but he's yes. just going about the planned strategy. Why should he suddenly be forced to have to ruin his tires, lose a bunch of time and make a, an overtake on a teammate? It's It's just very different from two drivers who are battling for a championship. If this yeah. was Rosberg, Hamilton, they were super close on points and the championship's on the line, I would be all in favour of, you know, drivers, the, the teammates can choose their strategies yeah. during the race and try and get one up on each other. But that's just not this situation. Matt. 
Well, it's interesting because at Alpine, you had a similar but different situation, and I'm glad you bring up those things. But what I want to talk about is that it was Russell affirmatively asking for the alternate yes, strategy when that's he realized key, that's he key. wasn't going yeah. to be able to pass Lewis, which is fine. But the flip side of that is, as Brad rightly points out, if I'm on a one-stop strategy and I'm, well, I'm into my 28th or 29th lap on my hard tire, I don't have the pace of Lewis. There's no point mm. in fighting Lewis. And it's That's bad it. for both of our races if we do that. And especially okay. when when we have Carlos signs in DRS uh, on Lewis. And and Russell is like, let's use the signs trick, like the signs Lando trick, as they did. Yeah. And 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 Hamilton is like, well, that's fine, but mm. I should be in front okay. because I have the pace to stay in front of Carlos. And and Russell absolutely does not. And the first person to get past if I'm in the middle of the sandwich is going to be me. And then we lose both places to Ferrari. And he was completely right about that. Can I be brutally honest and not at all uh, biased as a Lewis Hamilton fan? Of course you can. We trust your neutrality. <laughs> oh yeah, please. Please. Trust. You are the Switzerland of this comment, my friend. Oh my God. I've got no stake in this fight at all, but look at the points table. Look at the points table. Lewis Hamilton's quite a bit ahead of George Russell, and George Russell was right to call his season a disaster because on race pace, George Russell doesn't have it. He, what, for whatever reason, you could say that it's Lewis Hamilton's team. You could say he's new to Mercedes. He hasn't caught up yet. But for whatever reason, on race pace, race after race after race in this season, Lewis Hamilton is the fastest driver in Mercedes and George Russell is fast enough because he's brilliant at driving race cars. He's fast enough to overtake. If Lewis Hamilton makes us a mistake, he's fast enough to qualify ahead. If he has more of a, a qualifying setup, Brad, George Russell is fast enough to get in Lewis Hamilton's way and no more. Yes, that's accurate. And oh. at the start of this race, they were, Obviously, Hamilton out-qualified Russell this time. They're level on yeah. qualifying. So I don't think Hamilton, I mean, although he's got the record for most number of poles ever, I don't think yes, he's I agree, ever yes. been the, the best qualifying I driver agree. at but every Brad, single Brad, event. I agree. Versus people, always, people always yell at me when I say Lewis Hamilton isn't actually the best qualifier. People always yell at me and go, he's got nine, you know 9,000 poles. Um, and he has because of the amount of time he spent at a top team. But if you look at him compared to his teammates, he hasn't actually like dominated even Bottas or, or Rosberg in the way you'd expect. And, and I think at least partly that is deliberate because he has looked towards what will suit the race better rather than what will get him one lap pace. But my point being here is that this race, he did qualify ahead pretty yes. comfortably ahead. It was three and a half tenths ahead. As he he made the point in the interview afterwards, he, he made really sure everyone did. knew it was three and a half <laughs> he really made the tenths point. ahead. Um, and then in the race, it, he was destined to be faster on race pace because he generally is. But he made a couple of mistakes. And the first one of those allowed Russell to have an attack into the final chicane. And it was a really good move. So Russell did the move that, hang on, I'm going to have to get this the right way around now because I wasn't young enough to see this live. Senna and Prost into that final chicane. <laughs> yes. Senna went for the move up the inside like Russell did and Hamilton was in the Prost position 
And Hamilton isn't a dirty, silly driver like sometimes Prost and Senna were. Yeah, and, and, Senna, and so he didn't just so. turn straight on at him. Um, and they both gave, gave each other brilliant amounts of room. It was perfect racing. That's the kind of thing we've been starved of in recent years because of the way people have adopted the Verstappen style of no compromise. Uh, but there was compromise and they both got through. No contact, no damage. Brilliant. Hamilton was then able to repass him. Great little bit of action. The highlight of the race for me. But then Hamilton set about pulling away, you know, built a gap and was clearly faster on race pace again until he made another mistake going slightly wide just before going under the bridge. Yeah. And it, and so obviously Russell at the at this point when he's on the radio um, saying, you know, are we going to fight or we're going to fight each other or the other or, or the other teams or whatever it was he said. Yeah. Um, I can understand in the moment why he why he would feel like that, but also he was only in that position because the driver who was driving faster made a couple of, of errors. That's it. And I'd like to discuss whether the third incident <laughs> in spoon, was actually an error or yeah. not. Okay, so the, un, we're, the unpenalized Hamilton defense. Okay, so we're spoon. talking about so so as you come out of the the hairpin, I think Hamilton's mistake is just before the hairpin. So you've got Degna one downhill, uh, Degna two. He he goes out, uh, you know, over the curb, and that gives Russell the opportunity to kind of uh, to close up. And at the hairpin, he gets a run onto him uh, up to the double left hander of Spoon before the back straight, before 130R, and Russell gets a kind of... He, he, he gets on the inside out of the hairpin, and the, 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 turn, the, the, the straight, if you like, because you're flat out, drifts to the right. Russell gets track position on the outside, and then you've got a double left-hander. So he's on the right-hand side of a double left-hander and, and tries to hang it out around the outside of, of the first part of spoon curve so first off that's a very low percentage move it is unless you're already past the driver you know unless you're, you're clearly ahead of the driver that's defending by the time you turn into spoon you're probably not going round. but that doesn't really that doesn't excuse the next part if i'm right about what i think the rules are go for um, it which is that the, with our new driving rules we've had to get used to over the last couple of years, an attacking car on the outside isn't entitled to any room whatsoever unless they have their yes. car ahead by the apex. I don't like that. I don't like it either. But for consistency's sake, that's what we're left with and that's what the guidelines say. And so the car in Russell's position clearly wasn't ahead by the apex. I don't think they got remotely near the apex at the point they, they ran wide just because of the line into that corner. But the the part which is controversial is that in defending, Hamilton ran Russell all the way off the track and also didn't stay on himself. Ooh. The rules as they stand uh, are that you don't have to leave the other driver any room, yes, but you true. also yeah, yeah. have to be able to maintain your own <laughs> car on the circuit. Now, the questionable part here is, yeah. do the curbs, the outside curbs, <laughs> yeah. count as part of the racing surface in that particular corner because normally they don't normally it's the white yeah. line yeah but hamilton was on the curb but not within the white lines so this was this this was actually disappointing because initially like you and i disagreed strongly and and people were saying oh brad has tweeted a thing and and spanners has has tweeted a thing and like who's right and i went no brad's definitely wrong about this and then we've ended up unfortunately agreeing that we're both probably right so hamilton 
I was only paying attention when I tweeted about uh, the incident where uh, Hamilton has doesn't have to leave Russell room because he's ahead. And the rules are at the moment, if if you're ahead at the apex as the inside car, you don't have to leave room on the outside. And I actually, I actually had thought watching it that he'd stayed on track. Um, but he had left the white lines. So he'd gone outside the white lines, but was on the curb. And I I thought I remembered the race directors saying, we are now going to say that the white lines are the track limit all the time. And they don't seem to have stuck by that. And in this race, for example, Leclerc overtook Russell, I think, on the outside of turn one, turn two, also left the white lines, but was on the curb. And that was deemed to also have been a, a good pass. So I think in this race, they are saying that the curbs were in play. And it's, it's horribly inconsistent, Matt. And I, I, I it, according to what the rules are at the moment, Hamilton did nothing wrong by shoving his teammate off track and also broadly staying on the curb. Whereas my wish would be that it would have been judged to be that he didn't leave Russell room on the outside, therefore penalty, and that he left the track while overtaking, therefore penalty. But the rules of F1 are not what I would wish them to be, therefore no penalty. Well, what we would all wish, especially after last weekend, is a fairly consistent application of the rules. As to the use of curbs versus white lines, well, if it's made clear in the driver's meeting what's what, and we don't and know then that, judged yeah. accordingly, then then I think that is fair to say locally. Okay, if you're on on the curb and you're in spoon, you're considered to be in the track. And I think you could go look at deleted lap times and probably figure out pretty quickly like where that line lay. But as a matter of fact, as a matter of judgment of fact. Uh, this was not an overtake that was ever going to happen for Russell, even That's if Lewis left him room. Yeah. And Lewis, uh, I mean, you know, I always start the show going, what is it that I forgot to do? Oh, I forgot to go back and look at that a little more closely. But from the replay that I saw, the move was over before Lewis left the track. And now uh, you can disagree with oh, me. On, and my defense is I didn't look at it closely <laughs> enough, so you could entirely be right. But to me, it was never an overtake that was going to happen. It was opportunistic. And it, it, again, to fall back on my own racing experience, like if I had the chance to overtake Brad and karting, I wouldn't <laughs> because it would just waste both of our times. I've literally you, had. I, I've, I mean, I mean, I mean, I know Brad reacts nope. badly to that. He's like, you should always overtake me. But no, 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 no. I'm interested in the I've, fastest I can go. I've had that situation in a mistake okay. X karting event where I was, I think I was P4. Brad, Brad, you were stuck in a dog cart in P3. And I had a couple of opportunities where I could dive down the inside. But I went, but, but what would I gain really out of that position? Like anyone can not break and go down the inside and temporarily gain a position. But my thinking was, well, if I do that, we're going to lose track with the, the guys, you know, up front. So there's more to racing than if I can simply make a move, I will. So I'd just like to point out from my point of view, it's, it's kind of irrelevant whether or not he would have made the move stick had it been allowed to play out differently because and I'm trying to be consistent with the drivers that I'm fans on and the drivers I'm not I'm not fans of. The fact was that Hamilton did run him 
wide. And yes, so the, what might have happened was never allowed to play out. So in my fairness mind, I'd still fall back on what's legal and what's not legal. And watching that live and seeing that situation just play out in front of my eyes, because most racing in the world isn't Formula One and most racing in the world has a sensible application yeah. of driving standards. Formula One, I'd just like to point this out for everyone who's listening who who is basically just a Formula One fan, doesn't watch other motorsports. That's sport. me. Formula One is a bit of a um, an anomaly in the world of motorsport in that the driver etiquette rules are terribly enforced, awfully inconsistent, and don't allow for good racing because of this being allowed to force people off thing. Just look at what happened with the Hamilton-Russell fight into that final chicane where they gave each other room. The fight continued. We had a good battle that continued for more than one corner because that's how it's supposed to be. And anyway, so back to my point, watching that live, my driving mm. brain is tuned to see that particular move that Hamilton did, that particular defense as illegal. If I yes, did that, I agree. I agree. Any yeah. race series yes. I've ever raced in, yeah. karting, real cars or sim racing if i did that move i would expect to be penalized for it It, but in formula one that's not necessarily the rule Mm. sometimes it is sometimes it isn't and so my initial reaction wasn't necessarily in line with what this weekend specific rules were yeah so So i'm 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 torn so obviously like i I don't want hamilton to be hamilton to be penalized because i'm a hamilton fan um and i i think that at the way the way things are being judged that's not a penalty but with my like you know what i would wish i would look at that and go that's not doesn't feel like the way we should go racing but jono i'm gonna put you in the toto wolf position right now because toto wolf wasn't at the track which might explain a little bit of a delay in the team orders but you've got lewis hamilton and george russell legitimately fighting you have a long history of fairness between teammates and letting them fight but you have a young teammate that isn't on par with race pace you have two teammates that are not doing the same strategy what do you do when they suddenly meet on track seven or six laps from the end on different strategies um i can answer that in a sec just once i didn't get my two cents sorry on the russell hamilton incident and russell was never making the corner is 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 when you watch from his perspective and his onboard. Even if you make sorry, even if you make the move on Lewis mm-hmm. and Lewis gives enough space, obviously Lewis didn't give enough space and he, he goes beyond the white lines, George wasn't making the corner. So if he made the move legitimately, he would have had to give the position back or suffer a five second penalty, one of the two. And that's why it was ignored and, and the racing incident and and whatever it was, you know, I don't even think it was investigated at one point. Now what you do if you're Toto Wolf yeah, it's an interesting one because you Spanners have been talking about this for months, if not since last year. I'm not sure when you you sort of first brought it up, but you've genuinely been on the camp of you need a number one. Yeah. Mercedes are going to be fighting every for a title team, soon. Every team needs and, a and, number one. Mm. Yeah, and what do you mm. do in that situation? Now, I think if you're Mercedes, there's no point playing that battle now when you're not fighting for a championship. There's no point picking a number one now. Let the number one come out on its own. And I know that's a bad thing to say because they tried to do that in 2007. It quite didn't, didn't really work out because it's like, who was the number one that year, you know? And then they, they, uh, anyway, tricky situation at McLaren mm. over there. But in this year, if it gets to like round seven and you see Lewis Hamilton's ahead by a race, then you start to go, okay, well maybe we should favor this driver. He's our best chance and look at it so far. He's been your best chance. So 
that's that's a tricky situation there. And it's not just them who are going to have to decide this. If McLaren yeah. bring a car next year where they have to fight for a title, who do they choose as their number one to score as many points? So it, it's to me, I think you leave it up to the driver that sort of is is the, All right. sort of walks in and becomes the king of the mountain, and that's how you decide it. Okay, Matt, should yeah. Russell have let Hamilton through when first ordered to? Yes. Okay. It, 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 it's a no-brainer. Different strategies. He was trying to make a one-stop work, and 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 Hamilton was on a regular two-stop, and and much faster. And in fact, if I was Toto, just to tie this all together and mention tires, because we you know, we have to. needed to talk about that yeah. some, is I would just show uh, I would just show George the lap times. Lewis was almost two seconds a lap faster on those fresh tires. It, it just it, it 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 is not a thing that needed to have this big of a fuss made about it i get that there were hard feelings about the behavior at spoon maybe we could have a separate chat about that but at the end of the day the stewards like basically said well this this was an entire non-event probably for the reason that china mentioned that 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 russell was not in a position where his only choice was to go off track when they entered the corner and so so the answer is well just look at the lap times george like, like I understand you're in your cockpit and you're, you want to score them. You want to beat Lewis and we want you for that reason. But the practicalities of the race, the externalities, if you yeah. want to be all fancy about it, dictated otherwise mm-hmm. in this, in this circumstance. And to, to his credit, because we have sort of been bashing him a bit yep. to his credit post race, he seemed to be very accepting of that. Okay. So we have been bashing him. So, Brad, I'm going to continue bashing George Russell. (laughs) I tried. I tried to give you an escape there. George Russell only wants to beat Lewis Hamilton. And that's a big, big problem. Yeah. Yes. If we're looking at a situation where, I mean, this year it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. But if we're looking at a situation where you've got a, a tight title fight, which is, you know, we can dream that that's a potential thing that could happen <laughs> yeah. in the next couple of years. And you've got a team like Red Bull, where you've got uh, a clear... Uh, it's not just that Verstappen's number one, he's just clearly better than his teammate as well, but you know, sure. a de facto number one, who anytime that car is capable of scoring a win, on all the tracks that that car's good at, he's going to win the race. And you've got a Mercedes where uh, all the tracks that that car can win, sometimes it'll be George and sometimes it'll be Lewis and sometimes it'll be neither of them because Russell will get in the way and you know, and, and cause both of the strategies to to not work. I think it's, there's a really good argument for having two good drivers. There's also a really good argument for having one that's a clear step behind. And I was arguing for Russell to be in the, in the second Mercedes all the way through the final couple of Bottas years. And I actually yeah. think Russell being there in 2021 might have helped Hamilton win the championship because all the times where the Mercedes was clearly good enough, there was never a Bottas taking points off of, sure. of Verstappen. But I think with the current situation, he's a little bit too close or at least close at the wrong time. Here's the thing. He's and good. He's good enough to, to be in the way. Yes, exactly. Mm. That's um, right. uh, I just wanted to mention something that I saw. Uh, I saw on X Twitter that Toto Wolf had apparently made the actual yes. call himself. But it was such an fast. obvious swap. Like it was, like well, it could just be on WhatsApp, isn't it? But it was such an obvious swap. Like there's no, I, I can't see any logic. No other team fouls 
the driver on the faster tire when 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 the strategies kind of intersect. No other team goes, ah, yeah, well, yeah, you're on the harder tire, so therefore you're entitled to track position. That might help you against the rivals, but there's no other team that just goes, uh, yes, you have to hold up your teammate who's on the normal strategy because you took a a a a different other strategy that kept you out and gave you track position. Jono. Why don't we, if we had paddock access, I would ask George, are you trying to beat Lewis? Like, what is your, yeah. what is your goal? Yes, like, why that is his goal. Ask yeah. Him that? yeah. Yeah. Like, no, no, but like, why can't we just get down to the bottom of things and just <laughs> ask questions? You know, yeah. that, that's, that's the frustrating thing about that. Um, that's interesting about Toto making that decision, what just texted and went like, swap him. Yeah. Swap because, around. Yeah. Did you hear, Jono, when they, the radio call came across, it changed from, you know, invert positions yeah. to this is, it was something yeah. along the line. It, it was, it, this is not a request. This is an instruction. This is an exactly. instruction. instruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must be code for team order, basically. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, definitely. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go on to our podium. A surprisingly entertaining Japanese Grand Prix. In the dry, still provided lots of racing action and not a single technical directive insight to hold back Max Verstappen. The new floor, that's all right to say, isn't it, Brad? The new floor seemed to just fix stuff. Therefore, so I... therefore, the technical directive never existed. Yeah, so this has been the, the topic of the last week. And it's always nice to have something to chat about and some hope to cling on to. <laughs> yes. I... I think my my hunch now is probably that the whatever technical directive changes any of the teams had to make didn't have a super dramatic effect. But the thing that I do take issue with is people saying that it was ridiculous and a conspiracy theory yeah, no, to suggest that that on the one race where the dominant car is miles off the pace that it might not be, that it definitely wasn't to do with the technical directive. I think yeah. until until we have the additional data points of this weekend and subsequent weekends, oh, I think right. it's, it's, it would be more of a conspiracy to just dismiss that out of hand. And I find it quite strange that, and obviously there've been strange Singapore results in the past, but still you've got a car yeah. that is, has broken all the records for dominance. What would be so different about, this particular the... track <laughs> no, no, that no, all yeah. the other cars were fine, but this one wasn't. So even if the technical directive had no effect, I don't think it was crazy to think no, no, maybe no, no, it no, no. did. And also to have the hope. My tweets and X's where I was basically saying, yeah, they definitely have been cheating for sure. <laughs> and now they've been caught out. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much mainly tongue in cheek that I hope that's the case. So if you be. argued that, that uh, Red Bull were doomed because of this technical directive, then obviously you would be wrong. I think the, the only real argument was, were Red Bull's actions at Singapore influenced by the technical directive? And so, you know, there's a flaw directive where, the, you know, the, the FIA say, right, we're now monitoring what you do with your flaw if it's flexing to hide the wear on the, the skid blocks. And they go, okay, good, right. In that case, then we're going to bring a new flaw. And here's where I got a lot of abuse on Twitter because they tried to bring a new floor for the Singapore Grand Prix and, and it didn't work, so they went back to the old floor. The old floor wasn't illegal. It's just that the FIA were now monitoring 
the not just the skid blocks, but all of the wear around the plank. So they weren't able to make that new floor work. And the solution seemed to be to raise the ride height. And, and Mark Hughes d- did, you know, uh, document how they raised the ride height. And therefore, the Red Bull wasn't able to connect to the floor, wasn't able to use that ground effect. So we get to the Japanese Grand Prix and they bring a new floor and it works. And we see the difference between Perez's floor, which was the old floor, and Verstappen's floor in FP1. And wasn't it something like a 1.4 second difference between between Perez and and uh, and uh, Verstappen? So and, at least two tenths yeah, the new floor. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, that's harsh. Have I not suffered enough as a Perez fan? Have I not conceded enough without that dig? But yes, so uh, there was a huge, huge difference in FP1. And then both drivers moved to the new floor. And uh, uh, from what I can tell, the difference in that floor map was, it wasn't like everything was changed on the floor, but it was the edges. So essentially, yeah, Yeah. so the floor edges. So it essentially meant that you could now run at a higher ride height, but you've got extra floor edge to mean that you're connected to the floor. I don't think it's crazy to go, hey, there was a technical directive which I heard about, and you, I know you heard about it as well. Matt, I know you heard about it as well. In the summer break, and they tried to bring a new floor in Singapore. Obviously, they didn't quite have the time to make it work. It didn't work. So now they do it in Japan, and it does work. Um, so there's no controversy around the fact that the technical directive is, is now no longer an issue for Red Bull. The, the somewhat redundant argument is, did it affect them in Singapore? Well, I mean, the thing I keep on harping on is that I really think if you want to understand the impact of that technical directive, you should probably look at Monza because that's where I see the evidence, just lap time evidence, that that suddenly Red Bull, which had been so efficient in an aero, in an aerodynamic way, I mean, suddenly had, you know, signs able to say ahead of Max for 15 laps. So does it have an effect? Well, yeah, they probably were already bringing something they knew would work to Monza in preparation for Singapore, where the actual technical directive was going to be enforced through whatever scrutineering magic the FIA had come up with. And if you look at the the performance differential, I think that gives you the best picture. They did bring a new floor to Singapore. It did not work in the way they imagined. Now, Red Bull says it's because of the the simulator didn't have the data for the resurfaced part of the track, and that caused them to get a whole bunch of stuff wrong. And in the end, they reverted to the old floor. The other thing about Singapore is that the turns are very short radius, and they're mostly 90 degree, and the braking is almost all in a straight line, none of which the Red Bull is better at than other teams necessarily. So it was always a weak track for them. That's also true. But you can't argue there was no impact from the technical directive, I don't believe. But I believe they were not the only team to be impacted. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm still pretty sure Aston is the team that has lost out the most from this. And that's, that, that, that is sort of how I look at it. And I don't know if that makes right. you, I don't know if that proves your point or <laughs> disproves your point, but, but that, 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 that's sort of kind of where I am with it. I'm going to assume that that proved my point. So let's go on to the awards. And the first award we do is the thing of the weekend. 
Jonathan Simon, my Australian friend, my sporting foe. What do you think stood out for you as the thing or the person or the who or the time or the ethereal concept of the weekend? I thoroughly enjoyed when Carlos Sainz was sitting there behind two Mercedes claiming the DRS trick as his and something we should name after him, the science DRS trick. When <laughs> no one else has 70... ever done that before. Exactly. And uh, there are probably people who have done that in video games, let alone the real world in F1. But science, in my opinion, made it famous. He's claimed it. <laughs> yeah. It's and his. he's marketed himself very well in that situation. And he gets my, my thing of the weekend. Very close uh, first place. I was about to give it to Fernando Alonso, who um, the only reason why... I mean, we didn't really talk about Aston Martin that much this podcast, and and neither do we about Ferrari too, because they could have um, easily have pitted Science first them. at the end. And yeah, exactly. And and had they pitted Science first, and if he didn't undercut Leclerc, they would have kept uh, fourth and fifth instead of losing a position to Mercedes. But that's uh, that's something that will take like ten minutes to unravel. But um, Alonso keeping himself relevant mm. by uh, saying that they he, the team threw himself to the Lions, or, or did I get that quote wrong? Um, no, that's absolutely right. Second. Yeah. So it is a miss to to not kind of unpick the Ferrari race, but it was relatively if you want to talk about it from a strategy point of view, yes, it's, we could go, well, that's quite a good weekend for Ferrari, but they had one big strategy call to make and it was whether or not to uh to to cover off Lewis Hamilton and 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 they anticipated Hamilton's pit stop with Leclerc and they 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 kind of sacrificed signs in an alternate strategy, which they did in the reverse in the last race. So that's that's kind of why I didn't dwell on it, Jono. It, it didn't seem kind of super interesting. The reason I thought it was very interesting was they had, uh, so Verstappen had first and the McLarens had the, the final podium positions wrapped up, right? Ferrari's your third quickest car. You have to finish fourth and fifth, right? Because Perez was non-existent. So he's not really a car. Now, all they had to do was finish ahead of the Mercedes, and that's a successful weekend because stealing a position from the, from the McLarens a bit too ambitious, I think, for the pace that they had. Now, the gaps at the second stop, right when Leclerc was coming in, Leclerc was 1.8 seconds ahead of his teammate Sainz, who was Sainz was 3.3 ahead of Hamilton. But they've decided to pit Leclerc first because they don't want to risk Sainz undercutting his own teammate, which I understand. But there's 3.3 seconds to Lewis Hamilton. Now, the undercut wasn't, you know, it was worth a lot. It was worth, a, you know, a couple of seconds at least, but not 3.3. And I'm not sure why they didn't bring signs straight after or at least tell Carlos, hey, maybe drop back by half a second and we'll bring you first or do something like that. So it was tough for Ferrari. It was a tough situation for them to manage, but I think they should have gone for it. And I think they should have gone for, uh, for, for pitting uh, Leclerc and then signs following up straight up. Mercedes did a great job with the undercut. I think that Ferrari is in love with the concept of the noble sacrifice. They sacrificed Leclerc <laughs> last week very clearly for signs. They love it. Signs, although he was much closer than I thought to being ahead of Leclerc at the start, was second driver, and Ferrari had zero problem dispatching him. If you'd like a different take on that, Ferrari is really only capable of doing strategy for one car, and the other car just <laughs> oh, gets used to help on. out. That's harsh. That is that is harsh. But, can I add as well? I love how Leclerc nails and destroys Carlos Sainz over a race weekend when the cars 
can't win a race. But Carlos Sainz looks like the greatest mm, Ferrari driver yeah, ever because yeah. he actually wins a race. You know, this is like George Russell last year. You know, it was like Lewis Hamilton was like better than him. But George is like winning all the races when the car well, was hang good. On. This is but, our thing of the weekend award and it's gone quite, oh, yeah, kind sorry. of, it's gone yes. negative. So sorry. I'm going to go second. I'm going to go second. And, uh, oh, where can you follow me? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Spanners Ready um, or on Instagram, Spanners Ready as well, or on Facebook as Richard Ready. All the links for everyone's social media will be in the show notes below. But the thing of the weekend does have to be Max Verstappen sealing the the constructor's title on his own. Like Max Verstappen has basically won the the entire constructor's championship on his own. I don't know what the exact points are, but let's take away all of Perez's points and go, is Max Verstappen going to win the constructor's title on his own? Yeah, and everyone's everyone everyone's nodding. So Matt, if we play this out towards the end of the season, Verstappen is going to beat Ferrari and Mercedes. Uh, yeah, I think uh, right now he'd be ninety five points ahead in yeah. the constructors if right. they just didn't bother to hire a second driver, which you know, admittedly, would save mm. on some costs. Although they're exempted costs, so oh gosh, I'm not going to go down that road. No, the thing the thing that is getting to me here, Max Verstappen did not win the constructors championship red bull won it by designing and building and being propelled by an amazing uh power oh, unit counter and Count. designing mm. an amazing car yes max helped the team mm. like obviously quite a lot looking at the points don't get me yeah. wrong not diminishing his impact but the constructors is a team championship and the team Jono. is mostly invisible behind the driver. So I, I just do want to bring them up a little bit here. They have done, as Brad was alluding to earlier, hmm. an amazing job from the legal point of view, from the practical point of view, from the design okay. point of view. It's all been amazing to watch. So all I want to yeah. say is, as someone who's not a Red Bull or Verstappen fan, not every driver on the grid seals the Constructors Championship for Red Bull here at Suzuka with 85 races left. So <laughs> like you can't you can't not put that at least a little bit at the door of Max Verstappen. In fact, it, it's a lot, Jono, at the door of Max Verstappen. I'm pretty sure every Red Bull employee gets uh, I might be getting the figure <laughs> wrong, but let's say around 10 grand as a bonus for for winning the constructors championship. So if I'm Sergio Perez, and let's say he was the only driver at Red Bull and he's barely winning this championship. I'd be looking at him with, I'd be greasing him down, you know, the garage. Every time he walks into that cockpit, I'd be like, are you serious? You're going to cost me 10 grand. You're for, really, <laughs> you know? And Verstappen, I look at him and go, you made me rich. Thank you very much. You know, I appreciate it. So, <laughs> That's the one. you know, there's, there's the, the added bonus of having the very quick Dutchman in your car. Brad, what's your thing of the weekend? Wait, not yet. You made a video on YouTube about you're a you're a good driver, Brad. You drive well and you scare normal people taking them around racetracks. And you have made a video that deserves a lot of views. So I made a video. It's the best edited video I've ever made for my YouTube channel, which you can find by searching Brad Philpot on YouTube. No, you can also um, click on the show notes below. So long as Brad, you share that link with Matt. Yep, I did. Um, yeah, well, you could do that. Um, it's it's about uh, a little week-long adventure that I took with a couple of Texan friends where I taught them the Nürburgring, and they drove some very, very fast cars. And 
I didn't intend to make a video about it, but I did capture a bunch of footage and I came home and decided to weave that together into a, an exciting little eight minute long video. It's so great. If, if you'd like to take a look at that, go and do that for me and subscribe to the channel. That'd help me out a lot. Um, you can also follow me on X at Bradley Philpot. So nice. I'd like to try and stay ahead of spanners in the, in the follower. Account. How many, what, what are we you? doing? How many have you got? Where, I'm where teetering on the edge of 21,000. <sighs> I'm at 18,000. So you're still, well, you're, you're still winning for now. You're closing so, in fast. So follow um, me my... at Spanners Ready and don't follow Brad. And if you're already following Brad, unfollow temporarily so I can win. My thing of the weekend was in the cool down room where the drivers see, they get to sit and watch some of the highlights of the race together. They played the replay of Perez crashing into was it magnuson at the hairpin it could be magnuson spun him around and and my thing of the weekend is norris's reaction where he went oh interesting (laughs) and that that made me chuckle so that's my thing of the weekend excellent and matt do rumpets what's your thing of the weekend okay you're gonna hate me for this because my thing of the weekend is gonna backdoor not only the alpine embroglio that we failed to mention but also the Alonzo thing that we didn't get to. But my thing of the weekend, radio transcripts. I learned so much from reading Team Radio this weekend, and it was so decidedly enjoyable from a dramatic narrative point of view. So drivers, please don't realize that we can now access (laughs) all of your comments all of the time immediately after the race, because as soon as you do, it's going to get as boring as the press conferences are. Matt, tell me why Gasly was speaking. Should we say mean? No, let's say why was Gasly speaking Italian as he went down the grid? Making hand gi- mm. gestures recognizable to a New York City driver? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, okay. It's a very simple story and it comes down to communication. Uh, Ocon had been on a one stop strategy. Gasly was catching him near the end of this race. The team realized that Gasly might catch Alonso ahead, and they wanted that to happen. So they asked Ocon to let Gasly by. Ocon was two seconds ahead when that happened. Ocon said, yeah, but I get the plays back if he doesn't catch him. His engineer said, we'll see. A minute later, he's, the engineer said, yes, you do. But the team didn't inform Pierre that that was the arrangement. Jeez. So Gasly goes by, gets to the end of the race, and they're like, oh, um, yeah, give that place back to Esteban. And he's like, what? This is not what a racing driver should do. I am using completely safe for work words to express my displeasure over the radio about no, this. That's not what happened. And, and then yeah. when he crossed the finish line, there were some recognizable <laughs> Brooklyn gestures. And I do believe he attempted to beat his halo into submission on the way into park for May. Yeah, it was rough, Brad. I, I just wanted to express Jeez. my sympathy, or is it empathy, for <laughs> being in that position. And I think he did a very sensible thing where he didn't press the radio button whilst mm. he did those things. Yes. He was just letting out his frustration, having a bit of a tantrum, and doing that in into his helmet and i'm sure lots of us have, a, have done that i did a similar thing when oh, alex van Jean crashed into me yeah. on the warm-up lap at our latest go-kart <laughs> race <laughs> and, and to be absolutely over, over ninth and tenth as well yeah yeah no that's all i was saying Matt. it's over ninth and tenth as well yeah. is it's like barely meaningless positions you know for a team who were contending for podiums yeah. a couple of years ago five-year plan 
and, and I just want to say, I don't think Pierre said anything that any racing driver hasn't thought when they've had to give up a position. Yeah. But unlike the Mercedes, Gasly hadn't caught up to Ocon when Ocon gave up the position. So from a larger sense of team fairness, I understand why you might, because like there was no threat from behind. If you let Gasly catch Ocon, they can raise for that extra mm. point, two points instead of one. Yay. Okay, right. If I'm Alfa Romeo, maybe I enjoy that. But it, it was a small deal. Gasly's mm-hmm. hugely ahead on points. Um, and and there's there's the it just shows you how racing drivers think about every single position, how important it is to them. And I don't think that Gasly is is wrong to feel that way because okay. the team messed up here. Sure. No, we're Can doing oh, no, 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 you can't, Jono, because the positive side of the show is over, right. and we now have to, from our armchairs, from our sheds, we have to pour scorn on drivers. And I've tried to be positive. The negative things in F1 and watching an F1 race, it's so easy to pick fault. So let's do that. Who missed the apex for you, Brad Philpot? Oh, this is just too easy. This is too easy. <laughs> yeah. I, got, I was sitting here thinking, okay, so if, if Matt chooses this one, then I have to go <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. No, Jono no, you're first, you're first. One. Oh, this is easy. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm completely spoiled for choice. Let's go Perez. Perez <laughs> missed the apex because he was off the pace in qualifying. Yeah. He was not good in the race. He is armed yeah. with one of the most... No, in fact, I think you can say the most dominant race car yeah, in Formula yes. 1 of all time. He's armed Different. with that yeah. car. Disagree. And, and even if that car... And I don't think he has a different car to Verstappen, but even if he has a different car to Verstappen, slightly, or if it just doesn't suit him, that is no excuse because it's so much quicker than it's everything far, else. Yeah. He should be able to scythe through the pack effortlessly and he clumsily bashed into everything he could yeah. and was just generally poor and this wasn't a one-off he's been pretty <laughs> he's rubbish been for the last okay. couple of years and has been well off of his teammate for the last three years Perez missed the apex for me yeah. for the last few years if you've hit a third of the grid in the last two events it, the the missed apex award is is justified i think that's fair Jono, who missed the apex for you I'm going to steer away from drivers and, and teams and all that and go to the broadcast because, well, maybe maybe blaming the broadcast here is a bit bad, but at least uh, maybe the race itself missed the apex in the sense that I think at one point I was staring at my screen and they had the camera pointed at Sergio Perez's car oh, ready I hated to go that. out. Jono, Jono, and I the, was not yeah. interested. As a Perez fan, I wasn't interested <laughs> in seeing him while he was on track because it was so awful. The last thing I then wanted to do was watch him on track, you know, in the garage was, was pathetically uninteresting. So, so I went and got a stopwatch out because I literally was watching it and I went, okay, all right, we're going to, what's the race? All right, we're going to change. Okay, all right, we're not changing. So I said, you know what? I rewinded and I got the stopwatch out on my phone and I actually timed it and it was 44 and a half seconds of yeah. watching Sergio Perez do nothing, which I calculated is half a lap. Half mm. a lap, we just watch somebody sit in mm. a garage and do nothing when there's a Grand Prix going on. It's not even a safety car. It's mm. not a practice session. It's not the beginning of qualifying. 
Elena Tessession. Why did we sit there watching him for 45 seconds? Did they anticipate he was going to go out because the engine was revving? Who mm. cares if he goes out anyway? He was 26 laps behind at that stage. Is there any chance, Matt, that that was the longest ever pit stop? Like, what, why on earth was Perez allowed to continue when he'd basically retired? Um, because much like my favorite New York, uh, Ranger player who realized there was no rule against just basically standing right in front of the goalie and punching him in the face repeatedly did so for a game until it was outlawed because there was no rule against it. But I'm surprised Brad didn't bring up the amazing record of, I do believe Perez is the only person to ever get two DNFs in a single race. (laughs) Or two retirements in a, in a race. I, but, I swear it's been it's been done before. I swear there must somebody be, did there it must like be. in the last 10, 15 years, but this has been the first high profile one that I can remember. Mm-hmm. Was it Mark Weber? I can't remember many years ago. Yeah. But you can be you can be sure that no other team will be allowed to basically retire and then send a car out to then serve a penalty. I'm I'm very sure that won't happen. But please do check the show notes below and follow our panelists, Jonathan Simon from Australia Land all the way from Australia land. Follow Brad Philpot and go and check out his video of him terrifying civilians around the Nordschleife and follow MattPT55. And of course, follow me at Spanners Ready on Twitter. I'm the best one. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Mr. Apex Podcast. <laughs>
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.